fellow travellers. Uh, welcome to Fudged Film. This is our intermission episode for March 2019, in which we talk about the films what we'd done seen. Uh, I'm Drew. With me tonight, Craig. Have at thee. And making a brief appearance to the arcane magics of post will be Scott. <laughs> Talking of arcane magics, they will actually present themselves right now as Scott tells us about Captain Marvel. Mm. I just hope his tolerance for this kind of thing isn't ebbing at all, Drew. My tolerance for Marvel films ebbs ever lower, so I suppose you'll have to bear that in mind as a framing device as we delve into the 21st of them, which by this point have all blended to a fine interchangeable puree in my mind. But to shortcut some framing devices, Captain Marvel is the story of Brie Larson's Captain Marvel, nee Carl Danvers, introduced to us as an amnesiac elite soldier of some bunch of aliens or other, in the middle of a war with some other bunch of aliens or other, stranded on Earth in the 1990s after a mission goes awry. After some initial disbelief, she teams up with Sam Jackson's young Nick Fury to fight the shape-shifting Skrulls who have followed her to Earth on the trail of some lightspeed engine or other, and along the way they will uncover the secrets of her past, the origin of her powers, and the truth about who she's fighting for and against. Now, on multiple occasions I've tried and failed to get more involved with running our Twitter account, and Captain Marvel is a pretty good example of why that never sticks. I have no interest whatsoever in recapping any of it, but a few things stick in my craw that do need to be addressed. First, if you are enough of a baby to hate a film sight unseen, based on the activism of the lead actor, then you do you, but your opinion is of no interest to me. Second, if you're loudly proclaiming your wokeness by saying any criticism of this film is rooted in misogyny, you do you, but your opinion is of no interest to me. If we can't somehow discuss a silly comic book film without immediately polarising to the extremities, why are we bothering discussing anything on social media? I say this because I have criticisms to share, dear listeners. Now, To be clear, Captain Marvel is not a bad film. It shares the base level of Marvel competence that their well-trod formula churns out. It passed the time, just about adequately, unfortunately. Just like Black Panther, I can't be much more positive about it than that. And I admit that will give short shrift to those who feel that they can find some degree of representation in this, in a genre that's a bit of a pale sausage fest. But Wonder Woman was actually fun, and this, well, it's not the best script Marvel has given us by a long chalk. Look, I don't really care about plot holes in comic book movies because they are comic book movies and to a degree it's part of the plot that there's no clear description or limit to the captain's powers. But that doesn't explain why in one scene she's blasting through steel doors or spacecraft like their papier-mâché and in other scenes she's struggling to fight goons. I've appreciated the hand wave at least. More critically, and apologies to those that liked her, but here, Larson, to me, is most akin to a wet blanket, or at least an over-dampened pillow. There's a bit of a tell-not-show issue here, as the film stops dead at least twice, and a little more organically a few more times, to tell us that Danvers is smart, strong, powerful, delightful and funny, and it really ought to be more concerned with showing us why she is these things particularly funny, and while of course that's very personal, I didn't chuckle once over the course of this film. She's doing everything else acceptably enough, though, and overall she's fine, but given the hype train around the film and the character, I'm not so sure fine cuts it. Support is solid, Jackson, Jude Law, Ben Mendelsohn, Annette Benning, and Lashana Lynch all providing more flavour than the bland main course. It's just a shame that no matter how much mystery the script tries to build around Captain Marvel, she is just not interesting enough to care about. The greater conflict between the Krees and the Skrulls is rather more engaging, but necessarily takes a backseat to the lead character, which would be fine if there was more development on that axis. But the Larson that gets dropped from orbit at the start of the film is pretty much the same as the one that's dropped from orbit at the end of the film, and as a side note, if you want us to believe that there's even a fractional risk that the Captain won't fail, maybe don't have her falling from orbit and smashing into the ground as though it's a mild inconvenience? 
the rest of the film, well, as I say, has the usual Marvel competence in terms of effects work. Mostly, I'm not 100% sold on the aging effects used here, and while most of the time it's okay enough to keep Jackson out of the Uncanny Valley, poor Greg Clark looks like he was attacked with Vaseline and cling film. In common with seemingly every film these days, it's about half an hour too long, which in general speaks to a script that could have done with a few more review cycles. Look, it's fine. It's okay. It's a standard issue Marvel film. And for lord knows what reason, the bottom does not appear to be falling out of that market any time soon. This will slot comfortably into the lower middle of that back, which isn't really all that distinct to Peloton anyway. But when Marvel Studio bods are saying Larson and Captain Marvel will be the one leading the MCU post-Infinity Imbroglio, uh, I'm not convinced. But as it happens, I also don't care, so that works out swimmingly for me. Marvel film out of five. <laughs> well, we can all certainly agree with that. I don't know anything about that movie, Drew, um, and I haven't listened to Scott's review of it yet, so why don't you tell me? Well, uh, I quickly read Scott's review, so um turns out Scott's review is quite like my review, so this will be fairly short for me. Uh, Captain Marvel's fine, I guess. It's okay. okay. <laughs> um yeah, as Scott said, it's the Marvel films are quite formulaic now, uh, and that's in almost every respect. And so it means that the, no film tends to be particularly awful. They tend to at least have a base level of competency. Mm, they meet they meet a minimum. Uh, yes, they meet yeah, a minimum standard, don't they? They do very much feel like product rather than art, and this is very much one of those. It is. <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. Yes, it's fine. It, it kind of fits in visually with the other Marvel films, in this case, more particularly the Guardians of the Galaxy, although the Guardians of the Galaxy thought any of the space stuff has, seems to have a particular look, mm-hmm. and the Earth stuff has another particular look. This is definitely more towards Guardians of, the Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy for most of it, and it's fine. But as I've commented before, while it is competent, it tends not to be particularly visually distinctive or visually appealing. It's not an ugly film. But it does look like you know like processed food. You know, mm. it's it's not always going to be awful, but it's fairly bland and you know, satisfies our very base level. But you often want something more and better. Mm. And it has that problem to it. Um, talking of Guardians of the Galaxy, though, one of the the bigger problems I did have with this film is that in Guardians of the Galaxy, the soundtrack was a big thing the sort of very 80s inspired soundtrack and that being used uh, diegetically in the film as well. And But uh, there was a particular reason for that. It was important to one of the characters. It was a plot point and a character point. It feels like in Captain Marvel they've tried to copy the same thing but with 90s music this time but just because, well, it worked for Guardians of the Galaxy let's do it here and it doesn't. It fails. It utterly falls flat and it's incredibly on the nose at points too and start playing No Doubt's Just a Girl. It has nothing to do with what's happening, but it's all well because it's this female superhero and let's go to hammer on this point really, really heavily. There's all of these things too, like campaigns to get money to um, get underprivileged girls to be able to go and see Captain Marvel. What, you, what, so you want to crowdfund to give Disney money? That's who Ooh. you're giving money to. It's not helping girls, it's helping Disney. You know, mm. the, the megalithic corporation that are just taking all of the money in the cinema nowadays and all of the copyright laws as well. Hey, hey, hey Disney. Uh, yeah, people are talking about this being this great female superhero and uh, that's a good thing, yet it's also not the first because Wonder Woman 
Yeah, Warner, uh, Warner beat you to it, man. And it's considerably better. Oh. This film is in many ways quite insipid. Wonder Woman's really entertaining. Oh, so would you rate Wonder Woman above this? Oh, miles above this. Really? Um, See, I, 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 Scott, yeah. I, I had a, I had a, I remember you guys liking Wonder Woman uh, much more than um, possibly I did. I was really underwhelmed by it. I was hoping uh, for a lot more, but I, I accept that I seem to be in the, the minority all, ra- all round on that. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I was interested because some of the reviews I've seen of Captain Mark, well, actually, in fairness, it's had quite mixed reviews. I've seen some really favourable reviews and then some like incredibly tepid ones as well. So I don't know, whereas the praise for Wonder Woman seemed to be fairly universal, I feel uh-huh, like. So yeah. yeah, I was interested to see where this um, where this tops out kind of thing. So I, I am very interested in seeing Captain Marvel nonetheless. Um, yeah, I mean, Wonder Woman certainly wasn't perfect, uh, but up until the bit where I always lose interest, which is where the, fin- uh, the finale of the film turns into a CGI monster mm. battle, uh, um, up until that point, I was really invested and really entertained. But mm. this is like it's fine to up until the point it turns into a CGI monster battle at the end. And it's like mm. uh, also the character more or less turns into Superman. Yeah, his, as um, I understand. Yeah, Superman's really boring because he's basically a god. For the same reason, this character has the same issue. You know. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, also as Scott talked about. There's all the the nonsense around it, most of which I've tried to avoid. Um, and have been largely successful in, but uh, like all the the campaigns and stuff, and of the the butt hurt people mm. who seem to be offended simply because there's a film acknowledging that women exist, which is, strikes me as odd. Always has struck me as odd. It's like women are the majority <laughs> of the people on the planet, but oh no, women! Really, <laughs> the, the thing is, the resentment only seems to kick in above a certain budget, as far as I yes, know. yes, I know. <laughs> They're not complaining about other movies being made for women. It's just the notion of a woman going out and actually achieving um, traditionally male status, such as superhero. <laughs> you know that that well worn, true to life thing, superhero. Yeah, yes, um, there's also something. And a lot of it seems to revolve around people getting really angry at Brie Larson for the things she said. Oh, was this the thing about interviewers? Yeah, and reviewers and things. And Mm. the the small amount I've seen, like, so I don't know, Brie Larson seems like a bit of an arsehole, right? And she... Um, she's got a bit of a point but has not made it well and has really kind of mangled it and lost a good message in the way she's delivered it yeah. she's maybe um, not fudged it in uh, she's maybe not fudged it in the Liam Neeson sense no but... no no no, no. <laughs> yeah but yeah so she's um, she comes across as a wee bit uh, the Scottish expression might be nippy sweetie uh, and that actually comes across in her character in the film she's not particularly likeable uh, Scott described her as a wet blanket which she's fairly, kind of, she's there for a lot of the film. And the rest of it, she just seems kind of, she really rubs me the wrong way. And that mm. seems to be, from again, the very little I've seen, seems to be something of her actual personality. Uh, but absolutely nothing she said or done warrants the well like campaigns of hate against her. Mm. You know, and that that's the, the really ridiculous thing. It's, like, it's a film where a magic woman gets made magic by a magic space engine. And then becomes magic. Oh, pitchforks now! Let's get mm. burn the burn the witch. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> um, and as I said, like, there has been other better representation before too. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> as for the rest of the film, it's yeah, it's fine. There's um, some of the 
CGI de-aging stuff that is on Samuel L. Jackson it's actually pretty successful it's only mm. really given away when he um, when he runs it's like yeah there's a 70 year old man running despite the fact his face looks like he's in his 30s mm-hmm. he's in the 1990s poor Clark Gregg though Oh, oh, does it not work out? So I haven't heard oh, anyone don't. talking so much about Clark Gregg's de-aging. It's is nightmare the... fuel, Craig. <laughs> is it really? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's a different look, but you know how bad Jeff Bridges' floaty head was in Tron Legacy? Yes. It's kind of that bad. Oh, that's a, a different look, but that sort of level of, of yeah, nightmare fuel <laughs> yeah. and wrongness. Uh, the rest of it, I don't know, if it is... In the Marvel Universe, because there's some thoroughly entertaining films. This is a competent, but still fairly, that's a damp squib. You have Lee Pace returning from Guardians of the Galaxy in the same role. Miraculously, oh, what's the opposite of miraculously? Evil, evil miraculously, worse than he was in Guardians of the Galaxy 1. And yeah, there's, the film just seems to suffer from a lack of, well, lack of consistency in character for one thing. So it doesn't seem to know whether she's like a fish out of water on Earth where she doesn't remember her past or whether she's just completely on board with everything else and understands everything happening. I was like, you know, make up your mind. Does she have amnesia or not? You know, there's, there's no consistency there. And yeah, it's got, there's a montage and I really don't think I'm spotting anything here because everybody's going to see it's probably seen it anyway. But um, there's a montage where basically the general idea is that this woman, she's got what it takes because she's been knocked down all her life and then she gets back up. Oh, is no one ever going to keep her down? No. Um, <laughs> she gets knocked down, but she's up again. No, they're never going to keep her down. Cause she, does she drink a whiskey drink or a lager she drink? She a lager drink, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so there's a, a montage of her um, of her getting up multiple times. Like, okay, Graham, I can see that that's coming. And, and it's a kind of nice wee moment. But it seemed, there's basically, that's her entire character development for the film. Cool. And the ability to stand back up again is a character trait. It's not a character. You know, it's uh, so there's just, it needs more. Uh, I, th- I know that Scott actually found this over long. Given that that's something, a drum I bang a lot, I'm quite surprised I didn't. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed it actually. I, I, I didn't really notice the running time of this, which was a surprise for me. But yeah, this, it's just, it's fine. So I wouldn't, and if you're interested in Marvel films, you're probably going to enjoy it if you've enjoyed a fair number of others. But it's so far away from their best films and their most fun films. I mean, there are some. There are some definitely funny moments in it. A lot of them involving a cat, curiously enough. Uh, but the rest of the dialogue is just absolutely honking. It's so insipid. Hmm. And then has daft things like trying to sound scientific, I guess. There's a a dead alien at one point and the Earth authorities find him and the guy says, whatever this guy's made of, it's not on the periodic table because physics are different than the rest of the universe. They don't have the same things. <laughs> I'm probably, in my normal manner, thinking too hard about that. Fair enough. Right. I think we've spoken enough about that. We have. We have. Uh, can I uh, wax lyrical about Free Solo? Please do. Um, to put it mildly, Alex Honold is a bit of a card. Living out of his family's van for the last decade or so, he has had one mission and one mission only, to free climb, or specifically free solo, the world's most difficult rock faces. 
For almost every member of the human race, bar a handful of notable exceptions, the pursuit of free climbing remains one of, if not the most baffling endeavours imaginable, <laughs> ascending thousands of feet of rock without the aid of any safety equipment whatsoever. Um, it's no surprise that the great majority of proponents of this pastime are either expired or broken beyond repair. As renowned climber and El Capitan expert Tommy Caldwell puts it, it's like an Olympic sport where absolute perfection is required to attain the pinnacle of gold and everything else is dead. <laughs> Alex Honnold has a reputation within the climbing community for being peerless among his generation, but even those who revere his skills the most seem concerned by his goal of the last nine years, which is to become the first person to free solo El Capitan. It is this goal, attempted in the spring of 2017, with which Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth uh, Vassarhelis... I'm sorry if I've massacred your name, Liz. I'm not sure what... It kind of looks like a Hindi name or something, but then mm. perhaps we think it's maybe like a Greek or Macedonian somewhere. That, but I, I have no, no idea. idea. <laughs> but Vassarhelia, anyway, I'm going for Elizabeth Vassarhelia and hoping that if I say it quickly enough, she doesn't notice. Um, it's with this that their documentary concerns itself. I'd somewhat prematurely formed a mental image and incredibly detailed assessment of Honold's personality long before watching the movie, which was a bit silly of me, as Honold can found such judgment at just about every turn. It should have been obvious that there would be very little typical about someone consumed by such a pursuit, and what we learn of Alex is genuinely fascinating. He is, by all accounts, a down-to-earth, forthright, and above all, composed young man, and what comes across primarily in terms of character is his frank assessment of just about every aspect of his life. Honold is honest to a fault but not in the abrasive way that rude people who self-describe as straight shooters own. Uh, rather than gung-ho or flippant, he comes across as someone who has genuine understanding of the risks involved, born of introspection and qualitative assessment of what is important in life from his own perspective. I was surprised at how quickly Honold put me at ease with his choices, though that's not to say the filmmakers don't aim to put our faith as an audience to the test in the latter part of this movie. Uh, the film does a great job of balancing understanding both Alex and the mountain, and somewhat atypically it doesn't adopt the mechanism of facing them off as mismatched adversaries. Chin and Vassarhelia do a fantastic job of keeping the technicalities to a minimum and explaining the magnitude of what Honold hopes to achieve, in the process attaining the documentarian's holy grail of separating interest from topic. Audiences with no investment in rock climbing as a pursuit will still find the approach engaging and rewarding, hopefully coming to an understanding of Honold and El Capitan along the way, which is not to say there are no missteps, both for the movie and for Honold as it happens. As a narrative tactic, engaging in Alex's love life in an attempt at drawing his emotional detachment into stark relief proves vulnerable to her opinion of his girlfriend, Sani. And let's just say, I'm not the only one in our house to have found her an almost constant irritant. Rather than introducing drama, it really only served to subtly undermine the understanding I had forged of Honold's character, calling into question once more his sanity, especially when the woman in question causes him to sustain not one but two serious injuries um, still your own mileage with Sani may vary and I certainly wouldn't let it put anyone off engaging with the movie the main event of course and the very reason for the documentary's existence is Honold's eventual attempt at the climb itself despite having spent some time climbing in my late teens and early 20s I have never maintained much interest in it and I was completely unfamiliar with Honold's story as such and having had no prior knowledge of the documentary's existence I was completely unaware of what the outcome of his attempt was to be the film certainly does a very good job of highlighting the dangers at a number of key points along the route and we see Honold fail each of 
them at least once, sometimes numerously, while attached to a rope during his preparations. Chin and Vasarhely's best achievement turns out to be maintaining suspense, and I don't mind telling you that on more than one occasion throughout, I felt physically sick, and that was watching on a TV. Goodness knows what cinema audiences experienced. As the attempt is underway, we even see members of Chin's film crew unable to watch as they document, and while the cynical might have anticipated some cheap injection of drama, their reactions to Alex's ascent never feel less than genuine. Mm. I won't spoil the outcome, but Free Solo is a fantastic piece of filmmaking that takes an audience on more of an emotional roller coaster than any number of dramas, thrillers, or horrors I can mention in the last few years, and I recommend it wholeheartedly. Drew, what say ye? Largely the same. Uh, yeah, I I had never heard of this guy. I knew nothing about him watching the film. I had never heard of the film until a couple mm. weeks ago when I heard it described in another podcast I listened to as having a second half that was very... Um, Scary. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, kind of uh, palm moistening. Yes. Hand sweating, you know, um, mm. which I didn't feel, but it's like, it's, it's maybe just not me, uh, but... I think my overriding feeling through this film was nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Yeah. Uh, the you mentioned the uh, sort of the potentially abrasive character of the climber. I've forgotten his name already. Alex. Alex. Yeah. Alex. Yeah, that's one. Uh, that you know, um, he sort of no nonsense. He doesn't. It is like brutally honest, but it's, for the most part, you're right. It isn't in that sort of just brusque, rude way or mm. trying to excuse not being nice to other people. He mentioned, I think, that his father or his mother mentions that his father probably had was Asperger's. Um, maybe there's like there's a wee bit of an element of that to his character, mm. um, I think. Uh, and yeah, he's he's maybe a little callous at times because he, the way he talks about having Sani around at first. It's basically like he's having a girlfriend as a pet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which we have to assume is not his intention how he come across. And I, I laughed out loud when he first described her. <laughs> she doesn't take up much room. Yeah. <laughs> it's, somewhat, it's somewhat unfortunate. Somewhat yes. unfortunate, but I think if, if that comment had come later in the movie, after we better understand his character, it might it might have played a little bit better. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't come across well initially. It doesn't paint the best light at that point in the film. It's certainly mm. um, I don't think I consider her an irritant. Certainly not to the degree that you seem to have done. Mm. But there there were elements that were bothering me about her, which is like she was, for instance, if you are in a relationship and you end up with children, right? Um, planned or unplanned, then you are you basically required. It's your responsibility to change your lifestyle to look after children. That's mm-hmm. your duty, right? Mm-hmm. These are the consequences you have to deal with them. At this point, they don't have any children. They, there's a very young relationship as well, but she's already talking about like, well, mm-hmm. um, are you going to like stop climbing because I say I love you and stuff? Like that? Yeah, you don't get to do that though because you. No went into this relationship eyes wide open knowing exactly that this is what this man cares about this is what that, this man will go that's to. precisely what irritated me most about her is yeah, that I, she, I her, her, why. her constant attempts to um, inject herself into his into his thought process when she must have known from the very start what what was happening and and also and I don't want to talk about her too much because it's not 
it's not a crucial part of the film, but and it's um, not her story either. No, it's not her story at all. And also, do you know what? She might be a she might be a perfectly lovely person. I don't I don't know. I don't want to cast him in aspersions, but there there seemed this desperate attempt on her part to convince him that she was a bigger part of his life than she actually was. And you see it amongst some of his fellow climbers. Um, when Caldwell is is talking about her initially, um, he closes on a slightly more favourable comment. But yeah, yeah. he he pretty much re- you don't have to read too far between the lines to think this guy just thinks what is what is he doing with her? This is absolutely this is a distraction. Which at, for the stakes at which we are playing here, make no mistake about it, that this is a relationship which is going to get him killed potentially. Yeah, and you, you yes. See the- the number of people that have died when you need absolute, hmm. you can't ever have your mind distracted. No, you can't make a single mistake. Yeah, but which potentially leads for a very lonely existence, though. So you hmm. can, but he's like maybe just like for his welfare while hmm. he's still climbing, it's perhaps best not to be in this relationship. I think what's most interesting about what they've done with their characters that it's that is that is the part of him which I found the most difficult to reconcile. Not his. Uh, not his desire to mount the climb because by the end of the film I feel like we kind of I'm a, you know you're a bit more at peace with why it is he wanted to attempt it uh, you might not necessarily 100% understand it but I think um, you can relate to what it is he's saying whereas I found it impossible to reconcile his adoption of her as another half given the mm-hmm. circumstances of his pursuit and his talk about the warrior spirit and focusing yourself on something to a point of perfection at the exclusion of all else just didn't ring true with that relationship it's just it's just really really odd really bizarre but um, at the same time though i had similar thoughts but i was very aware that in all those supposed intimate moments there was a camera person there filming them yeah, hundred percent. I think so that it was could obviously really change the dynamic of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and force people to behave in a way that they might not otherwise behave. Um, clearly, yeah, had it even been like just kind of fixed cameras left in their personal mm. spaces, which point a, a lot of documentaries done like that, there's a good chance that the um, you'll catch an off guard moment. Yeah, the subjects will eventually sort of. F- stop noticing their existence stop thinking about the existence mm. we'll relax we'll be more natural I was, I was very very aware through all of those things I couldn't like the moment where she's saying goodbye to him and, and waking up to kiss him goodbye um, on the day he's going to do the climb mm-hmm. and there's a camera person sitting filming them I'm like mm-hmm. that's just weird yeah um, and yes also that makes that not a true representation but um, I guess that's how they chose to film it so you can't really do anything about it now mm. But overall, as a documentary, ah, oh, it's fascinating. Um, as with all these such all such things, and obviously in this case, the risk is very much his. Because um, I, I had no idea what the result was going to be, so I won't say mm-hmm. because I didn't know anything about him or the film going in. Best way to be, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if this person's free climbing, then the risk is very much the free climbers because there really is nothing holding them. Whereas the camera people do have ropes holding them, but still, I'm always aware of these things like. You're seeing like someone climbing up a mountain. Yeah, but there's, I want to see the other, I want to see the documentary in reverse. I always want to see the people carrying the cameras up mountains and they're not, mm. they're not just carrying their iPhone up or something. They're proper film cameras. They're huge. Mm. And they'll, 
taking them up mountains or even if you've got ropes on to sell that's pretty impressive mm. um so that's for me that's the only thing i would like to see a bit more of the kind of like a meta documentary of just a wee bit perhaps in the two-hour running time they could have pretty 10 minutes in probably of just like the difficulties of actually following him up and i know that's not the story they were telling but i personally would have liked to have seen that um and the only honestly the only other issue i had with it was that i just thought marco beltrami's score was a bit over the top a few points. It says a bit to hear some dramatic music. Mm. Boom, boom, boom. Pretty, pretty impressed that they got Marco Beltrami, though. Yeah, I mean, that's a big name composer, but it's, yeah. I kind of feel they went a wee bit OTT with it, maybe because they managed to get a big name composer. Yeah, maybe so no one knew quite how to rein him in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but no, it's. Uh, I'd, oh, God. Do you know what offended me most, though? That bloody Tim McGraw song that closes on oh, over the credits—that was so out of place. And I'm, this again, I'm sorry to bring it back to this. I immediately thought to myself, "I bet bloody Sani picked that." It's such a bum note to end on. It's a 2018 know. song. I, I paid attention to that at the end because I wondered whether it was like had been made for the film, which is another big name, but it's, it's, yeah, it's so cheesy. I honestly don't know. It is, it is one of those completely on the nose, kind of like mm-hmm. utterly unsophisticated achievement songs. It's just, oh my days. Even the things you should think. Yes, I, a really bum note to end on. But if you can see past Tim McGraw, um, <laughs> I really, really enjoyed this and I would heartily recommend it to anyone, regardless of whether or not you actually um, have any any interest whatsoever in climbing i think it's just a very interesting portrait of a person and just a, a incredibly perilous pursuit yeah i'd even just i'm sort of thinking about other things that relate to it uh, i forgot to mention just yosemite's a particularly appealing place to film in mm. yosemite national park in northern california it's just a beautiful place so it's just a striking looking film too simply by nature of where it's shot yeah um so yes, it's like that appeal as well as the actual content of yeah. What it'd be, it'd be hard. Sold. It would be hard to uh, not have it look good. Yes. Yeah. Um, on which note, I've been dreading this, but do you want to talk about Holmes and Watson? Want no, but I've watched it now, so I may as well get some use out of it. <laughs> you you must. So just a handful of episodes ago now, Craig, we were talking about two very notable Sherlock Holmes adaptations. We are indeed, which is why I convinced myself this might be worth catching up with. Yeah, so it's, it's a pleasing coincidence that another ad- adaptation, which in fact references both of those films, that's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes A Game of Shadows, has come along so soon afterwards. Or is it a pleasing coincidence? Well, no. No, it is not. There, there is absolutely nothing pleasing about this turd of a film whatsoever. Writer and director Aitan Cohen reunites Talladega Nights, The Bald of Ricky Bobby, and Step Brothers co-stars Will Ferrell and John C. Reilly as, curiously enough, Holmes and Watson. I'm not sure about you, Craig, but I know Scott certainly shares my appreciation for Talladega Nights, though Gary Cole and Karen the Cougar play a large part in that. Mm-hmm. And while Step Brothers was fairly middling, it did have its moments. Grown men beating up snotty pre-early teen asshats is far more amusing than it ought to be, certainly for a grown man. Sadly, it seems that Holmes and Watson was written both for and by those same asshat teens. Mm-hmm. Being as it is full of unsophisticated humour, yes. lazy topical references and penis jokes. Hmm, do you know what's funny, Drew? Not this film. <laughs> Accents and masturbation. Hilarious, Craig. Hilarious. <sighs> yeah, that's pretty much what it is. 
And the plot, such as it is, is that Professor Moriarty has... Yeah, you know what? Screw this. I can't be bothered with this. Mm. Someone's going to kill Queen Victoria, despite this seemingly being set after she died anyway. Mm-hmm. Only one of many geographical and chronological errors. Mm-hmm. And Holmes and Watson must stop this. They mostly do this by failing, falling, idiocy and luck, while parodying poorly Guy Ritchie's film and mm-hmm. making incredibly on-the-nose references to current news topics and pop culture. Oh, God. Putting <laughs> this squarely alongside the do-you-get-this-reference-comedy of trash-like date movie and ensuring a shelf life of about three and a half weeks. It has a talented cast, all of whom are squandered, and Scottish Kelly MacDonald from Scottish Glasgow in Scottish Scotland is honestly so bad in this that I doubted the veracity of her actual Scottish accent. Though she, as with the rest, suffers primarily at the hands of a risible script. While John C. Riley's career seems to be in rude health, it's sad to see that the funny days of the now 51-year-old Feral, here sporting a frankly embarrassing amount of makeup with a, mathet- a pathetic and unsuccessful attempt to fool us otherwise, are so far in the past. And I sincerely hope we can get more mileage out of his Ron Burgundy podcast than you could from this lazy, ill-conceived, poorly executed drivel. Hmm. I'd lay into the numerous inaccuracies, but it simply doesn't deserve it. And anyway, they could almost certainly be explained away by the 12-year-old who ghost-wrote this, neither <laughs> knowing nor caring. I've heard of... <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, no, it's okay. No, it's just as baffling. It's also baffling. Yeah. I've heard of the Titanic. That had something to do with Britain, right? That'll do. I'll stick the Titanic in there. Yeah. And what is arguably one of the film's funnier moments, which is not to say it got a laugh out of me, but there was a certain satisfaction in them waving their loved ones off onto the Titanic, (laughs) even even if, again, geographically, it was in perhaps the wrong place. Yes, um, built in Belfast, launched from Southampton, Wysett in London, yeah. uh, and after Queen Victoria died. But no, no, you're uh, making me think about it, Craig. What's a couple of hundred miles? Unmitigated pish. Um, yeah. I'll say it's like, I actually am aware of the three times that I did laugh, well, sort of half laughed mm-hmm. at one of them. I just, the very first thing that appears in the film made me laugh, and I thought, yeah. oh, perhaps this is not going to be quite as bad. When it's like, it, it's this kind of really worthy sounding quote, a really deep quote, and then claims it's from Hannah Montana. Yeah. I chuckled at that. Yeah. I sort of half chuckled at an entire courtroom full of people um, saying, oh, he's oh, a wanker. he's a wanker. Yeah. Um, and then which, is a payoff, though, which is a payoff to a set of, um, e- you know, uh, eagerly delivered euphemisms, but which they had clearly given up on halfway through. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the other time, I did laugh, a genuine laugh, at um, the supposed progressive female doctor saying that um, hysterectomies um, <laughs> released hundreds of demons. <laughs> I genuinely laughed at that, that. That totally threw me. I wasn't expecting that. See, um, see by, that, the, by that point, I had pretty much given up the ghost. It took me three attempts to watch this over three, na- over three nights. Um, but I, I too started out the first... I actually, in the first five minutes of this, laughed three or four times. And I thought it was going to get by on just being stupid enough. Yeah. In the, yeah. In the way that I always want to give comedies that other people write off a chance because I've... I have a couple of instances now of stuff that has been universally panned that actually just makes me laugh time and time again. Chiefly, I would think of uh, Hot Rod, which is a film that got absolutely bombed, got absolutely hammered, and makes me 
laugh like a drain every damn time I watch it. And I was hoping for something similar to this. I understand that there are actually two different openings to this film, uh, depending on which territory you watched it in. So American audiences, yeah, bizarrely, American audiences do not get the opening gambit we get of uh, Watson attempting to commit suicide after returning from the Afghan war. Uh And the sort of misheard exchange between him and Holmes, who is tending to some sort of oversized gourd in his garden patch, is Amaro trying to convince him to, if he's going to jump, to, to do it and move over and do it in someone else's garden. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of points, not that there was anything inherently about the notion of someone coming back from war with PTSD and attempting to take <laughs> their life. But in that exchange, there were a couple of parts that made me laugh, not, not least of all <laughs> Will Ferrell polishing a marrow and calling it a big, beautiful bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was other stuff. The courtroom, the courtroom scene. Uh, this this film reminded me of an affection I have for the word onanism, <laughs> which uh, re- rekindled that affection. A word which no one has used in over a hundred years. But the the point is that that sort of anachronistic um, language trait is something that this film just thinks is a joke in and of itself. Um, but that courtroom scene it sets up this whole thing with Watson, where he'll just like charge into a room and start randomly shooting off his gun. <laughs> And I honestly thought that I was going to, for some reason, that really made me laugh. And I thought I was, I thought it was going to happen again later in the movie, and it just it doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never it's, used again. That happens right after the first because the first time you see it's against bees. That's right. And then it does in the court. Oh, that's going to be a running joke of films like this. because, like again, it plays so heavily in the Guy Ritchie films. And that like, whole thing, is the Holmes Law vision being, thing, yeah, yeah. But Jude Law being like in a, a really great shot and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're like, okay, they're going to make Holmes in this. So I've watched this, like, really rely on the guns, but no, they, they, it doesn't. Because yeah. whoever wrote that had no attention span. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But there was enough there to suggest, right, enough silly stuff is going to happen. But it's not even a case of what I expected. Um, you know, when you have someone like Will Ferrell and then you pair them up and this happened a lot with Jim Carrey in his movies you get paired up with a director who just doesn't have the balls to tell him to shut up or the Mm. studio just places more power in the hands of the actor than the director and they don't know how to rein it in it's not even necessarily a case of that which I thought it might be there are moments in there which are clearly moments that Ferrell has come up with they're very sort of um, feral feral tropes Uh, the bit in the courtroom where he says something about a panther and then he goes to lick his hand and they've overdubbed like the sound of a panther snarling that's that's straight away I thought oh okay yeah here we go they're just they've just let Feral run wild and there's nothing less funny than a comic actor being given free reign um, but I don't even think at the end of the day it was a case of that I just think it is woefully poorly written woefully poorly directed and honest to god I'm not the world's biggest fan of Ray Fiennes but my heart broke for him in this you can you can watch him die you can watch his soul wither away across the course of this movie even though he's barely called upon there are scenes where you can just tell he was he was dying and he was just picturing his his paycheck um and he can do his mind so well he can scott and i talked about how good he is in the grand budapest hotel and And hail caesar right yeah oh and i forget about in bruges yeah it's not that he's without a sense of humor the gay um Director, yeah, mm, yeah. It's he, not that he he's without funny. humor. Yeah, he can. Yeah. I think. I think people often interpret him as being humorless, but actually, he can do funny on film. Mm. But oh my goodness, and Pam Ferris as Queen Victoria. What? <laughs> 
there's just it's, there's there's nothing to sustain this film across whatever ninety yeah. minutes, whatever it was. Squander Steve Coogan as well. It's just it's just bizarre, just bizarre. Um, so laboured. It has rightly died a death. And um, Ethan Cohen is a name which I feel like has cropped up loads lately. And yet when one looks at his IMDb, uh, his CV on IMDb, between writing and directing, he doesn't actually have that much happening. I feel like I feel like I've heard his name more often in this and linked to more projects, particularly as a writer. But weirdly, there's some thought because I know it's like, his name is so similar to the good mm. writer Ethan Cohen. Yeah. And I was like, so it's like, I don't know whether because that being very careful with the distinction that nobody is confused when you're talking about whether mm. that's maybe forced the name more to the front of my brain. But yeah, I yeah, think I it's because of that, that I've, I feel like every time I see his name, I've gone, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah. The guy who sounds awfully like sort of thing. But I, yeah, yeah. I just had this weird impression that he'd done a lot more than this. Um, so I would one would assume off the back of Holmes and Watson that he's you know he he might get put in the put in the cooler for a while, um, and for once I wouldn't complain. Um, yeah, just a baffling waste of all the talent involved. Baffling. Before we move on, we um, we have one bit of feedback on Twitter, and it is about this film. It's from the Marillion from Glasgow. I'm surprised he wasn't particularly offended by Kelly McDonald's accent. Mm. And he said... Uh, Wait, the Marillion? Is it fish? Um, there is a picture of him. I'm assuming it's him. It, it, it is not fish. It, oh, it's okay. spelled differently. It's okay. Morillion, not Marillion. Oh. We don't have a celebrity follower, Craig. Alas. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. <laughs> um, uh, he said, Holmes and Watson was good. Um, with an exclamation mark. So um, I think I, I hope you get better soon. <laughs> Yes, um, if, the, if you could let us know where to send the flowers. Um, yeah, Not stepbrother's good, but better than it had any right to be. John C is a good pal for being a ballast to Will's sinking career. I, oh, I, I, sorry, I forgot to mention this earlier. He said, Captain Marvel was watchable and young Nick Fury FX uh, was cracking effects. That's, yeah, it was watchable and yet the de-aging of Sam Jackson was a, a really great technical feat. Again, poor Clark Gregg. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we hope you recover from whatever malady caused you to think Holmes and Watson was good. <laughs> yeah. I wish you all the best. Yes. Please keep tuning in. But <laughs> uh, yeah, let, let us know you're okay as well. Um, okay. Yes. So Craig, would you um, like to tell us about another film? Perhaps you could tell us about... Uh, the latest from Netflix. Well, say the latest from Netflix. There've probably been eighty-two films on the same day, but <laughs> one of Netflix's hottest new films. Uh, that was- That's it. So hot right now. Triple Frontier. Uh, imagine my disappointment when this turned out to be not a euphemism for some sort of group sex act, but rather a <laughs> sausage fest of another kind. A Netflix-produced special forces romp starring Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, uh, Garrett Hedlund and Pedro Pascal. Those good old boys, never meaning no harm, are ex-special forces comrades who decide that countless years of service to their country ought to have left them better place to enjoy retirement. Affleck, the captain, has failed miserably as a condo salesman and a father, Isaac is an advisor to Colombian special forces who laments his inability to overturn the drugs cartels that are tearing apart the country of his mother's birth. Hunnam and Hedlund are brothers, the former giving well-worn lectures to new army recruits, the latter plying his trade in mixed martial arts tournaments. Then there is Pascal, whose ace pilot status is suspended following conviction for a minor cocaine rap. Uh, working with an informant in Colombia, and again, um, I'm probably going to absolutely massacre this poor lady's name, uh, Adria Ar- Ariona, Arjona, 
um, who is an accountant for one of the cartels. Isaac's character gets wind of a $75 million stash of ill-gotten cash being stored at a safe house. An agreement is made with the Colombian authorities to assault the house and split the cash, but after roping in his former colleagues on a recce of the area, the decision is soon made to conduct the assault alone and keep the entire $75 million, pleading ignorance to the authorities and pinning the raid on rival cartels. Oh, and it turns out to be more like $250 million. What could possibly go wrong? Um, to call Triple Frontier uninspired would be somewhat of an understatement, which is a disappointment as it comes primarily from the pen of writer Mark Bowl, who gave us Zero Dark Thirty, The Hurt Locker and most recently Detroit. Co-writing and directing is J.C. Chander, and again, you'd be forgiven for maintaining high hopes off the back of a most violent year, all is lost and margin call. Not that there's anything inherently bad about the movie, just that it all hangs together in a bafflingly and resolutely workmanlike fashion mm -hmm. and never really catches fire. While some of the tropes may be well-worn, there is potential here for exploration of a couple of interesting themes, but between them, Chandor and Bold don't seem all that interested in exploring much below the surface. Perhaps most disappointingly, while the characters are set up very specifically, they are, for the most part, entirely interchangeable by the time the action reaches Columbia. The least well-served, considering his billing, would probably be Affleck, whose setup is entirely at odds with the expression of character we see once the mission is underway. Yes, mm. thank you. Yes, like, yeah. where did that come from? Oh, it's bizarre. There's a fascinating turn to be had there, hinting at something much, much deeper and really wrong underneath the skin of this man. Now it but just turns on a dime. Yeah, but again, and perhaps bizarrely, nothing much is made of it, either in the moment or within completion of that character's arc. Isaac gets perhaps the best deal, if again paid short shrift, and both Hunnam and Headland are interesting enough, if underdeveloped in their secondary roles. I get most frustrated for Pedro Pascal, however. Game of Thrones' Oberyn Martell was a solid gold charismatic calling card, but outside of television, filmmakers just don't seem to know what to do with him. Here, again, he is given an interesting setup, but despite introducing some doubt around his abilities mid-mission, he gets absolutely hee-haw of interest to do in the second half of the movie. For a heist film running to over two hours, this is all pretty inexcusable. Nobody was expecting heat to the Colombian connection, but come on. Chander does handle most of the action reasonably well Although there isn't an awful lot of it Besides a couple of limited engagements and a helicopter crash uh, Writer Bo has often worked with Catherine Bigelow Who here has an exec producer credit And tellingly I spent most of the back half of Triple Frontier Wondering what she would have done with the material And I've since found out actually that originally she was attached to direct There's now fundamentally broken about Triple Frontier But also no area in which it really excels A cursory sweep of the usual internet resources yielded no info regarding the production budget, but I'm willing to bet it was more than Annihilation's 40 million, and I know which I'll be revisiting in future. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you, Craig. It's it's fine. Mm. Again, I'm I'm just going back to that sort of very underwhelming sentiment. It's fine. I mean, it looks lovely. There's some really nice locations because it is shot in Colombia, mm. and there's some really particularly it's uh, it has looked so sharp. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To the this towards the end when they're on the I was going to say particularly mountain. when they start covering the the mountains to Peru, right? Yeah, it's, it's incredible looking. It's so beautiful and sharp, and it's a really interesting location. And it's just uh, yeah, it's really kind of visually appealing. But the action, it's like meh. I, I kept expecting it to build to something bigger. Yeah, I did as well. I thought at least some sort of like, huge action set piece or something that would have fitted in that film actually yeah um as tired as i often can be of them in that film i was hoping for it and it nothing 
really action-wise happens. This it, it just felt like it's building, building, and then nothing happens. Well, the the heist, the sort of the raid on the cartel house takes place. B- b- not even halfway through the film and you're sitting there and you're like okay right this has got an hour and 15 to go something crazy is going to happen here I thought is this going to end up turning into like a siege movie Um, Mm -hmm. as you know what's going to happen something like that yeah totally or even I mean essentially it breaks down into being essentially a chase movie but with no real sense of the pursuit you're Mm -hmm. never and even given that one sort of shootout among the rocks which we won't spoil for people on the mountainside in Peru, that doesn't turn out to be what you expect it to be. And there's there's actually no sense whatsoever of them being pursued by the cartel, although they talk about it. They never really feel at risk. Um and there's no sense of there's no sense building of like impending danger or anything. So it's just it's it's just a lot of I was going to say dead air, but it's bizarre. It's not even dead air. It's just like competent air. <laughs> it's just it's just breathable air. It's just not doing anything for me. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely not a bad film in any way. It well made, well acted. It's just a bit empty. It's, it really feels like it was built to something. And there are hints of really interesting things there. Mm. Um, that, like, for instance, Pedro Pascal, he is hugely underserved. Yeah. At the start of the film, one of the reasons he needs to go to South America to make this money is that um, he's lost his pilot's license because of a cocaine bust. I'm like, um, not necessarily that he would be involved with the drugs in South America that they find or they could find, but more it's like, well, maybe that's maybe that's a sign of PTSD in him that that's why he was doing that. So they thought. There's all the sorts of different yeah, and during, of the cartridge you can and during for. during the raid he makes a rash decision as well yeah that but nothing ever comes of that and then Affleck you're like wow all right I know what's going to happen here or I this is this is the seed of something this this is going to be the reason everything all goes wrong no nope, not at all yeah and it's not even in reference later in the film yeah um, and because they keep on talking they talk up Ben Affleck's character as being he's he's the, he's the captain. By rank, he's the leader. Yeah, they're not going to do it if he the, doesn't do it. Yep. He's the honourable man. He's always got the best plan. But suddenly, he becomes a different character halfway the film. But there's no connection. There's mm-hmm. no linking device between the two. It's like, oh, suddenly he's a different person who's doing very different things that you claimed yeah. he was going to do. Like, and there's no explanation. There is a payoff, but yeah. even that payoff is underdeveloped. Yeah, and and how that character ends up, I was almost certain of it from the beginning. Hmm. But I mean, that's more just, I've seen lots of films and there's only one of two ways that could have gone and I picked the mm-hmm. more common one. But uh, Well, if it's going to have any pretense at being a morality tale, then certainly, yes, yeah, something, yeah. something like that's going to have to happen. But then again, what is the moral of this movie? I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I suppose it's nice that they do it, and it's maybe slightly more than lip service, but they do pay at least lip service to the fact that they try not to shoot people if they can avoid it. Um, it's not one of them. Films. Um, and then... There's at least some, but it really is some uh, sort of emotional fallout from that, that there's some regret and things, which is more than you get in a lot of those types of films. Mm-hmm. But it's still not enough. No. You know, it should have just been kind of heavier on that. Cause I mean, it's like, they're trying to like, oh, no, we are the good guys. What have we done? And I think that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, because certainly their setup is like, they kind of, 
because hey, they never took a penny. They were carrying hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to the CIA to pay off people and things. Never took a cent, but they feel like they've been robbed by their country and left hanging like so mm-hmm. many soldiers do. Then, at the very like, least, you expect morality and stuff, but it never yeah. goes heavily enough into it. At the very least, you expect there's going to be some sort of discourse over, oh wow, look, there's not really much difference between us and the bad guys, is there? Yeah. <laughs> but it just it doesn't manifest. Nothing manifests. It's weird. I mean, it's not like I'm glad it didn't go quite down as an extreme route as, for instance, Ed Harris's character and why his motivations in The Rock. <laughs> You know, for, which is a similar sort of thing, but the absolute other extreme. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I don't know, a wee bit more would be good. And again, back to Affleck too. There's one hint towards the start that something might go wrong because he says he can't sell houses to save himself because he's trying to be a, a real estate agent. Uh, and he's trying to support his family. And the only time he feels himself is with a gun in his hand. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they've built them up so much as being the great planner, the captain, the guy they look up to and everything, the one guy that they won't do the job without. And then he then becomes a completely different person, but there's no linking device. There's no, no passage to that character. Hmm. And yeah, it's, I don't know. So yeah, it looks nice. It's just, it's, I kind of wanted something a bit more special and I feel that there could be something special in it. And particularly with, as you referenced, Craig, the pedigree associated with this film in terms of writers and production and the cast as well. Yeah, this it I don't think something really special. Yeah, on and paper, the budget they had. This reads great, but yeah. Yeah. But hey ho. Um are you going to round us out on shoplifters, I believe, Drew? I am, Craig, I am. What makes a family? That's the question that Hirokazu Koreeda asks us in Shoplifters, his Pam Dor winning drama about an unconventional family with some unconventional ways of making ends meet. Nobuyo, Sakura Ando, and Osumo, Lily Frankie, work menial jobs in a poor area of the enormous sprawl that is Tokyo, not noted, for its, sorry, not noted for its reasonable cost of living. To supplement their meagre income, they, and you'll never see this one coming, shoplift, usually in the form of groceries like ramen noodles and shampoo. We're not talking master criminals here. And a crucial part of the shoplifting is Shota, Kairi Jo a gifted shoplifting apprentice and the couple's son. Well, more or less. These three live with Grandma, Kirin Kiki's Hatsui, and Nobuyu's sister, Aki Mayu Matsuoka, in a cramped and messy house in an impoverished neighbourhood, and though the family is not what it at first seems, they do share a lot in common, as even Grandma is in on the shoplifting, while also having her own little side grift going. Returning from their endeavours one night, Shota and Osamu encounter the cold, hungry and clearly abused Juri, Muyu Sasaki, and take her home. Here, in this house of absolute strangers, Juri encounters affection and attention she has never known in her five years. A change of clothes, shoplifted of course, a haircut and a new name, and she's soon adopted. Unconventional, illegal, but... Crucially and certainly, an absolute net good, especially when we learn more details about Juvie's life. One masterfully simple scene in which we discover an injury shared by Nobuyo and Juvie is, frankly, heartbreaking. Juvie is soon recruited into the shoplifting business, usually working as part of a tag team with Shota, and it's hard not to think of this as like her being recruited into Fagan's gang. 
but the genuine affection with which she is treated by her new family soon puts to bed that notion. Not everything is a positive, though, and most certainly not everything is what it seems, as a death and Shota's questioning of the ethics of their activities are the catalysts for a series of revelations and interventions. Despite the film's revelations, it isn't difficult at all to maintain emotional investment in Osamu, Nobuyu and Hatsue. Some of their actions are pretty easily forgiven. The others... Not forgivable, but perhaps understandable. Their clear affection for Shota and Jubi, however imperfectly executed, goes a long way to redeeming their worst crimes. If we can be expected to be emotionally invested in characters and good fellows of the Godfather, then doing so for these flawed but ordinary people is the lowest of hurdles to clear. Audience forgiveness comes even more freely when the central conceit of the film, what makes a family, is taken into account, as the traditional biological definition is seen to be failing Dewey in particular, and we see what harm can be done by doing what might be considered the right, and certainly the legal thing. Shoplifters is clearly influenced by Yasujiro Osu, and it also made me think of the films of the Dardon brothers and Vittorio De Sica, all of these being very good things, lest you be in any doubt. And it's a moving, tender, detailed and complex film, filled with subtlety and even some suspense, and more than a dash of melancholy, and is, really, off a off a good. A large part of this is a universally excellent cast, notably the wonderfully natural performances of the two child actors, this being their first film, as well as Ryuto Kondo's beautiful cinematography and a camera that feels intimate but never intrusive. It would be easy for shoplifters to have been, if not marred, then certainly tainted by sentimentality. I'm not familiar with the director's other work, something I intend to rectify, but it is a criticism that has apparently been levelled towards him in the past. Uh, instead settling for the much more satisfying emotion. If there's a bum note, it's a single scene wherein Osamu steals from a parked car as young Shota's burgeoning conscience pricks at him. While there's some gentle humour in the rest of the film, Lily Frankie's performance here seems a little too comic, something much more fitting to, for example, one of Takeshi Kitano's comedies. And... It stands out so much as it's the only scene like it, and it's probably the only scene in the entire piece that I didn't wholeheartedly love. So, like I say, off a off a good. Well, thank God we were able to finish on a note like that tonight. Yes, I guess all that remains is to uh, thank you for listening and thank Scott for, of course, posting us his review on Wax Cylinder. Uh... Uh, yes, we will be back in how many days? 10 days? 11 days? Uh, how many days are there days, in this month? Yes. In March, so there we are. Technically 12. Then. We'll be back in 11 days with some other ramblings. But until that juncture, I was Craig, Drew was Drew. Goodbye. Until that juncture, yes, thank you for listening and fare thee well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.